Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Did, did you know that in Alabama, it is illegal to wear a fake mustache in church if it causes laughter? Or that in Kentucky, it's against the law to carry an ice cream cone in your back pocket? Did you know that in Idaho, it is illegal to give your sweetheart a box of chocolates weighing over 50 pounds? While in Vermont, you are strictly prohibited from whistling underwater. Or perhaps my favorite, in Toronto, it is illegal to drag a dead horse down Young Street on a Sunday. So if you want to drag your dead horse down Dundas or Bloor Street, or even down Young Street on a Saturday, go right ahead, but don't even think about dragging your dead horse down Young Street on a Sunday of all days. And just to keep this uh, close to home, in Winnipeg, you are risking a $100 fine if you are caught humming or singing on public transit without prior written consent from the transit director. So there goes our plan for our city bus flash mob in October, but uh, we'll have to come up with something else. It's incredible what laws have been written and instituted over the years, isn't it? For me, the best part about these laws is that they were written for a purpose, right? I get a kick out of imagining the scenarios that led lawmakers to institute rules and regulations like this. What were these laws responding to? What were these laws for? And this is precisely the question that the Apostle Paul brings up in today's text in his letter to the Galatians. What is the law the rules and regulations that God gave to his people for. Over the past number of weeks, we have been reading Paul's letter to the churches in first century Galatia, which is a letter with seemingly one big point. The majority of the letters we come across in the New Testament have multiple topics, themes, challenges, and encouragements all throughout. However, as we have noticed, week after week, chapter after chapter, in Galatians, Paul has been hitting home the same point, right? His thesis statement is clear and consistent. And that argument is that salvation comes as a gift from God. It is not earned on the basis of human action or righteousness, but it is gifted by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and the reason that Paul is, is beating this drum over and over again is that there were some, as we've talked about, within first century Christendom who were teaching just the opposite, who were adjusting that simple equation to include works of the flesh, namely following the Jewish law. And because of this, Paul has been consistent throughout this letter in his assertion that the law is powerless to save anyone, and salvation has nothing to do with adherence to the Old Testament law. And so what follows from such a consistent testimony about the law is the natural question, so what is the law? Right? If, if it cannot save, what is it for? Or as verse 19 in our text for today clearly asks, why then was the law given at all? 
Would you turn with me to our text today in Galatians 3, starting at verse 15, as we explore that very question. We're going to be reading from Galatians 3, 15 to 25. This is what it says. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we study it, you would make um, that which you want us to know stand out and, uh, and give us clarity and understanding uh, as we dig into your word, that it would impact our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you tuned in last week, you heard Dom lead us through the previous text in which Paul uses the example of Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish faith, to prove that even he, Abraham, the spiritual hero of the Jews, was not righteous by his own means, but was simply declared to be righteous or credited as righteous because he believed God and put his faith in him. Uh, Paul argued that if even Abraham couldn't save himself, then certainly neither could the Galatians, neither could any of us. And he continues along that track in this text we find ourselves in, referring to something called the promise. You probably heard that, that word a number of times as we read. Uh, this promise is also referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. Now, uh, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but it it does bear a brief discussion uh, so that we understand what it is that Paul is saying. So in the 12th chapter of your Bible, uh, the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, uh, roughly 2,000 years after the creation narrative, we begin to read about this Abraham. 
who's a descendant of Adam through the line of Seth, through Noah, then Shem, and God makes him a promise. You see, God chose a people for himself to set apart as his own people through whom he would actively work in the world and ultimately one day save the world from sin through them. And in Genesis 12, he chooses Abraham and his descendants to be that people. And and he commits, makes a promise to Abraham in this regard. And Abraham's people become God's very own people. And so the rest of the Old Testament is read through the lens of God's people, the Israelites, or who would become the Jews. And God articulates this promise first to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, which says this. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now, this promise is reiterated throughout Abraham's life. It's actually reiterated all throughout uh, Jewish history, throughout the people of God. But, But we read this promise and variations of it from Genesis 12 all the way to Abraham's death in Genesis 25. And more details about the promise are revealed along the way regarding how and through whom these things would come to pass. But the main thrust of the promise is consistent all throughout, and this promise is threefold. The first aspect of this promise is regarding land, right? Verse 1 in the text we just read says, Go from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you, right? God has a place for Abraham's people, and throughout the Old Testament, he leads them there, and, and that place is Israel, right? As an aside, this is why uh, tensions about land, specific land in Israel, are still so high to this day, because God promised Abraham a specific place, a land, and uh, as I said, when we read through the Old Testament, we, we see the Israelites inherit the land, we see them lose the land, re-inherit the land, and so forth. The second aspect of the promise that God makes to Abraham is a people. In verse 2 of the text we read, it says, I will make you into a great nation. Abraham, you will have a people, a nation. And this has both religious and nationalistic implications. God expands on this in Genesis 15, 5, saying that this nation will be too numerous to count one day. Uh, This is what it says. God took Abraham outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. He said to him, so shall your offspring be. And the third aspect of this promise is blessing. So as we read through the Genesis 12 passage again, we read, And I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, as you can see in this text, the blessing itself is twofold, right? There's two aspects to this blessing. 
that Abraham and his nation will be blessed, but also that Abraham and his nation will be a blessing. God would bless him, but also God would bless the whole world through Abraham. And it doesn't take much of a bridge drawn to realize, and the text, as if you were to read through the rest of scriptures, we see this play out, that the ultimate conclusion of that blessing, its fulfillment, is salvation through Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, through whom salvation is available to every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. So that's the threefold promise made to Abraham to which Paul is referring. It's land, it's a promise of a people, and it's a promise of blessing or salvation. And the reason that it's important to know this is because Paul immediately brings up this promise to further argue his point and begin his discourse on the purpose of the law. So let's look again at our original text, verses 15 to 18 again, to see how this fits in. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture doesn't say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. I I love that, that Paul puts this. He says, this is what I mean. That's a confusing statement. But he says, this is what I mean. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Did you catch that? Paul's main point here is to remind the Galatians and the Judaizers that the promise came before the law. Little uh, Bible trivia here. When was the law given to God's people? It was given to God's people through Moses. uh, 430 years, according to Paul, after God made this promise to Abraham that we just read about. God promised salvation, blessing, international rescue centuries before the law was ever a thing. So he's arguing that the law cannot be a binding element of the promise that had been signed and sealed 430 years before the law even existed. Works cannot be a part of the salvation transaction. To illustrate, uh, Paul uses what he calls an example from everyday life, and he talks about contracts between two people. He says that nothing can be added or changed to a contract once it has been ratified, right? One party, party can't simply add additional clauses or expectations to a contract that has already been signed. And if this is true in earthly matters, Paul implies, it's certainly true in heavenly ones. The promise... Paul said, was already made before the law existed, which means that the law was never never a part of the contract. And the fulfillment of the promise through the salvation through the Messiah is not dependent on the law, right? So church, this is really good news. 
Right? God made a promise to his people that the world would be blessed, that the world would be saved through the work of Jesus on the cross. And your works, your righteousness, my works, my righteousness have nothing to do with that promise being fulfilled. Right? The promises of God are beyond you. They're beyond me. They are granted by grace from a loving God, not as a wage from a harsh employer. Right? This is the message of freedom coming up again in these pages. Your salvation is not in your own hands. It was in the outstretched hands of Christ on the cross when he declared, it is finished. Or maybe another way to put it, the promise has been fulfilled. When I first thought about this uh, contract analogy, I thought about the allowance arrangement that we have with our son. We give him $20 a month in exchange for some stuff he does around the house. Garbage, emptying the dishwasher, watching his sister when we're out, etc. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Cam and Bethany are cheap. And yes, that may be true, but that's not the point of the story. Uh, together, though, we, de- we decided along with our son, that this was an arrangement we could all deal with. And so he upholds his end and we uphold ours. But here's the thing. Let's say, just as an example, that my son were to miss his curfew one day. Right? We told him to be home by a certain time and he didn't make it home. Would we be justified in withholding his allowance from him? No. Why not? Because the curfew rule has nothing to do with the allowance arrangement, right? If we withhold his money, we are the ones breaking the contract because the contract said nothing about a curfew. Now, curfew may be a very real thing. There may be consequences to his breaking it, but it is different than the contract or the promise, right? In the same way, Paul is saying, yes, there is a law, But it cannot and does not supersede or nullify the covenant promise that came before. Right? So, so church, the freedom for us is that the promise comes first. Before you do anything good or bad, the promise was granted. So while you may be a gossip, and that's not good, you need to work on that. Your salvation is not connected to your gossip or lack thereof. While you may struggle with pornography, and that is not good, it's not healthy biblical sexuality, and you need to get help to conquer that struggle, but God's love and forgiveness for you have nothing to do with how your struggle is going, if you're winning or losing the battle right now. Right? You may be stuck in a whole host of struggles. And we as a church are here to help reach out to us. Because we are called to live as people who are free from sin. People who aren't under the bondage of sin. We're called to strive towards holiness for our own good and for God's glory. But no matter what the thing is for you, God's love, forgiveness, the promise comes first. And when we come to Christ in faith to receive grace from God, that is the end of the requirement. Christ has paid in full. Which brings us to the question of the day, as verse 19 puts it so aptly. Why then was the law given at all? 
If the law is not about earning anything, then what is it for? Now, before we get into that, I do want to point out that this is a significant question that has been at the center of theological debate since, well, at least Paul's time. And so, the disclaimer today is that we will not be able to address every issue, every verse, every nuance that contribute to the difficult and delicate theological discussion on this issue, right? The, the 20 minutes or so that we have left will not do justice to a conversation millennia in the making. But what I will say is that if this discussion is something that interests you, the relationship between the law and the gospel, um, I do have a couple of resources I'd love to point you in the direction of that I would recommend uh, that could bring you up to speed on this broader conversation. And so here are, three, uh, here are three resources that would be helpful if this is something you'd like to pursue on your own. Uh, the first book is called 40 Questions About Christians and Biblical Law by Thomas Schreiner. Uh, it's a really good resource. It's really easy to read and broken up really nicely into 40 uh, different sections. Uh, another book that could bring you up to speed on the nuances of this conversation is called Counterpoints, uh, Five Views on Law and Gospel. And that's written by Moo Strickland, Kaiser, Van Gemmeren, and Bonson. Uh, five different views on how this works. And they interact with one another throughout this book. And then uh, the third one um, that has significant uh, endorsements from all sorts of people who I trust uh, is called The Whole Christ, uh, written by Sinclair B. Ferguson. And uh, anyways, as with every topic we cover from this platform, there is more to learn. There are additional resources to pursue. There's more that w than what I can say today. And so I encourage you to dig deeper if you have questions, or if you're interested in something. And uh, those are just a couple of good resources to start with that you can dig into because we just won't get deep enough today. Uh, so for this morning, the goal isn't to unpack this entire question about how the law fits with the gospel of Christ. Rather, it's to simply to explore a little bit of what Paul says here in this text to answer the, this question for the Galatians. And in this, we'll do our best, but acknowledge that even Paul's words here contain things that are difficult to understand and debated passionately. Uh, in fact, one commentator suggests that there are between 250 to 300 separate interpretations of what is said in verse 20 alone. So needless to say, we're not going to touch verse 20 this morning. Uh, but we're, so, so just all that to say, we're, we're not going to be looking at every word in depth, uh, working to decode difficult sentences. We understand that, that this is difficult. But rather, we're going to look at Paul's main points, which I think are thankfully quite clear. And the goal is to understand the point and not to miss the forest for the trees. So uh, what does Paul say clearly in our text to answer the question he poses in verse 19? Well, I think he says three things clearly. He gives us three purposes of the law or roles that the law plays. And the first thing he says is that the law was given to restrain behavior and set God's people apart. Right? To restrain behavior and set God's people apart. Verse 19 says, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. 
Right? The law was given because of transgressions. People did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The, the people of God had a sin problem. That God restricted theft, murder, false witness, etc. in the law means that this was the way in which people lived. Because you don't need to restrict something that people don't do. Uh, just like the laws we looked at uh, at the very beginning. Evidently, someone dragged their dead horse down Young Street on a Sunday, right? The, that law wouldn't be there if it hadn't happened or if people weren't inclined to do it. And so the law pointed people to a new way of living ethically, living in right relationship with God and others, right? So for God's people, remember, this is a chosen people he chose for himself. For them to live as his chosen people, set apart, they needed to be shown what a set-apart life looked like. And so God initiated a law to be followed that would set them apart from other nations, that would govern the way they treated one another, and would allow them to know and interact with God, Deuteronomy 14.2 says, You have been set apart as holy to the Lord your God, and he has chosen you from all the nations of the earth to be his own special treasure. Deuteronomy 7.6 says, You are a holy people. That means set apart, different, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Right, if, if you think about it, the law was given as a gift. God chose them and allowed them through the law to interact with God, to know him, and to show one another what he was like as they lived out, or tried at least, the ethics of God among one another. In Romans 7.10, Paul says that the commandment, the law, was intended for life, right? God gave it for good, to, to shape a people for himself that lived out the heart of God for the world. Right? If they kept the law, if they lived the, the desires of God, there was freedom. There was civility. There was prosperity. Ungodly behavior was restricted. And a new ethic encouraged God's people to love others as self. And throughout the Old Testament, we see fruit of this. God put restrictions on slavery that no other nation employed. God established a fair criminal code in a part of the world where vengeance and power ruled. The law of Israel protected women, widows, orphans, foreigners, the poor, the marginalized in ways that no other nation even came close. Right? The law set the community of the promise apart from the rest of the world and showed them how to be until the promise was fulfilled. Now, out of the same statement, verse 19, saying that the law was given because of transgressions, we see a second purpose of the law. And that is to expose the existence and extent of sin. Right? The law exists to expose the existence and extent of sin. As preacher Alistair Begg says, the law did not come to tell us about salvation. It came to tell us about sin. Right? As mentioned already, God, pointing out the way to live, exposed the evil that had existed. Right? The, the law exposes what humans are really like. To say, don't steal, to call stealing bad, is to expose that some steal. 
to expose that we covet, right? We want things and we're willing to do whatever it is to get it. And, and it tells us that the desired activity is not what our natural instincts are, right? It points out the truth that we may not have been aware of. Have you ever heard your own voice in a recording before? How was that experience? Was it pleasant? If you're like most people, you're not likely thrilled with the sound of your own voice because you're unaware until you hear it played back of what it actually sounds like. Or have you ever seen yourself in a picture that wasn't perfectly curated, right? From the top with duck face or that cute grin you think makes your face look skinny. Um, How annoying is it when someone posts a picture of you from a bad angle, right? It exposes what we really look like, not necessarily how we picture ourselves to be in our heads. I, I remember when I was in a band, when we were first starting out, we had played a few gigs and we were gaining some traction, and then one of us thought it would be a good idea to record one of our shows, And so we went, we played the show, and then afterwards headed to our drummer's place where we got to see for the first time not what we looked like in our heads, but what our show actually looked like. Now I will spare you the details, but one of our band members almost quit the band that night. Right? We looked so bad. We were disconnected all over the place. We didn't look cool at all. Our movements were gimmicky and lame. Right? We literally didn't know what to do with it. We just kind of sat there with our jaws dropped going, that can't be us. Now, here's the thing. We had played a number of shows up until then, and we thought our show was awesome. Right? But we were oblivious to the reality of how lame we were until the video playback told us the truth. In the same way, the law holds up a mirror for us to see the truth. It plays the video back to us. It points out what we're really like. And without it, we would never know the truth. Right? If there were no laws for speeding in Manitoba, we would never know if and when we're driving too fast. Objectively, that is. But the law exposes that we are lawbreakers, that we are sinful, that we're inclined towards evil and selfishness, when without it, we would have had no idea. One commentator describes it like going to the dentist, right? Sometimes we sit down in that chair, oblivious to the pain we're about to feel, and the dentist, after poking around with sharp metal objects, exposes problems we don't know we had. The whole experience is no fun, and we wish we didn't have any problems, but we're much better off knowing the truth that was concealed from us. Because had we not known, we would have just kept on with our routines until the problem grew and became worse. Right? The law points out it's already worse. That we're not okay. And we come to realize just how much we need treatment. Just how badly we need a solution. It doesn't take uh, very long maybe this is homework this week, to read through the Old Testament law to see if you would stack up or not if it depended on your righteousness. We find out pretty quickly that any attempt to weigh out our good behaviors and bad behaviors against the law will always end up poorly for us. The law is like a lifeguard telling us that whether we know it or not, we're drowning and we need to be saved, which is the third thing that Paul says the law is for. Linked to the past one. The law is there to show our need for a Savior and point to Jesus. To show our need for a Savior 
and point to Jesus. When we realize that we're drowning and we cannot save ourselves, it is then that we come to realize we need someone else to save us. Look at uh, verse 22. It says, But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, remember the promise, being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Did, did you catch the so that? So that what was promised might be what? Received. Not earned, not accomplished, but received. It's a, a gift is received not by merit but by grace. Right? Seeing my own sin, having that exposed, and the inability to save myself implores me to trust another and to receive the promise. And it's the law that points to both of these things. In 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul writes to Timothy saying, the Holy Scriptures, this is the Old Testament, that's all there was at the time, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Right? The law points to Jesus as the one who fulfills the promise, as the one who can free us from the evil that is in us as revealed to us through the law. Right? The law lets us know that we're guilty and locks us up, as we read in verses 22 and 23, so that we would open our eyes and look for the key. Right? The purpose of the law was to show us the necessity of the promise and to direct our eyes to look for it. And if and when we look beyond ourselves, we will find that the promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Right? If you're not in prison, you're probably not looking for a prison key. But every movie I've seen where someone gets locked up, the first thing they start to do is look for how to get out. The law lets us know that we're imprisoned and we need to look for how to get out. And it points us to Jesus. Now I know this is a long quote, um, but theologian John Stott summarizes these past two points brilliantly in his commentary on Galatians. And he can say it better than I can. Uh, so just let's listen closely to, to what he says because uh, I think he, he does a great job um, stating this for us. He says, After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? Simply because he had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was, as it were, to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he's really like underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God, and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. Is this not why the gospel is underappreciated today? Some ignore it, others ridicule it. So in our modern evangelism, we cast our pearls, the costliest pearl being the gospel, before swine. 
People cannot see the beauty of the pearl because they have no conception of the filth of the pigsty. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. Church, we will never look to Christ for salvation if we don't realize our own depravity. But when we do realize how deep we are in our sin, the gospel becomes truly the greatest news of all. But it's essential to come to that place first. As Jesus says in Mark 2, 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Right? When, when we look at ourselves through the lens of the law, we realize we are sick and in need of the great physician. And so the law is necessary to bring us to a place where we run to Jesus. And just briefly, Paul continues in verse 24 and 25 to expand on the fact that the law points us or directs us toward Jesus. He gives us another example to drive this point home. Take a look at it with me, 24 and 25. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The word Paul uses here for guardian is the word uh, tutor or custodian. And in the first century, it referred to an adult, usually a slave, who was tasked with supervising children on the parent's behalf, right? They made sure, like the, like the child's keeper, their guardian, they, they made sure that the children got to school or got to the places they needed to be. They made sure that the children acted in ways appropriate to their position in life. Right? That is, until they came of age and didn't need a guardian anymore. So the guardian paved the way for eventual freedom, pointing the child in the right direction, preparing and protecting them for the promise of life as free adults that was to come. And Paul says the law acted in a similar manner. It was a temporary guardian, never meant to be a permanent fixture. But it kept God's people heading in the right direction, pointing towards Jesus and the eventual freedom we would have in him. And so as we wrap up today, it's important to note what Paul is saying and what he is not. Paul is not saying, and he hasn't all along, that the law is bad no, in fact, he says here that without the law, we would never be able to receive salvation. It's the law that exposed sin. 
It's the law that pointed to the necessity of Christ. And it's the law that allowed God's people to know him so that through them the promise would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. No, the law is not bad. It's necessary. But it's so important to note that while it's a tool used to point to the Savior, it is not itself the Savior. And to entrust any aspect of salvation to the legalistic obedience of the law is to force it to do something it was never meant to do. The law is not the promise, nor the means to the promise. Salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, is the promise. And God made good on his promise in Jesus Christ alone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for confusing texts, and we thank you for history that we may or may not remember or understand. But God, your word is so good, and when we dig in, it's amazing what we find. So God, I thank you for teaching us from it this morning. I, I thank you for, uh, for how, um, how the word comes to life and lets us know how we can know you, how we can interact with you, Lord, but ultimately how it is that we are saved. God, we thank you that you have pointed out to us that we need you and you have made good on your promise to save us when we come to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at Grant Memorial Church. <laughs>